Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Okay, um, last time we, we were talking about climate. Today we're going to be talking about how we know what we know about the climate. Last time I was talking a little bit about current climate. Today we're going to talk about the data, where we got that data, and what it tells us. One thing to note, uh, today we're talking about environmental reconstruction. Um, and we have a couple of readings that we haven't talked about. Um, Peraza L. et al., Desperat et al., and Hughes. Make sure you've um, at least looked over those, it looks like. Um, Peraza et al. is really technical, so just read the introduction and the conclusion. You can kind of skim over the rest and have a look at the other two a little more in detail. On uh, Monday, we'll talk about those and talk, like um, chat about how they describe what we've been learning about in class. Um, so make sure you've read those. It makes the discussion significantly more pleasant if we've all uh, at least had a glance at if not read, uh, the articles in question. And then um, starting next, Tuesday, uh, next Wednesday, we're going to start getting into the ancient Maya. Hooray! Um, and hopefully, we can use what we've been learning about the nuts and bolts of archaeology a little bit uh, to discuss a little more. I'll give you some background on the ancient Maya, but uh, I'm hoping to have uh, a lot more leading questions where we can maybe talk about some of the major um, reasons why people talk about collapse, the disappearance of the ancient Maya, where they went, and how some of these things kind of get overblown because, you know, the media, I'm not going to blame the media. Who am I? Okay, our president? Um, okay. So today we're going to talk about environmental reconstruction, though, before we get to that. No mentee quiz today. We'll probably get one of those on Monday. So, um, as I said before, people live in the world. They live in the environment that surrounds them. So understanding that environment is part and parcel of what we need to do as archaeologists. Remember the term environmental determinism. And recall that environmental determinism was, does anyone recall? I think I mentioned it last time, but I talked about it at great length before. Yeah. It's the environment determines the culture. Right. Yeah, it's a limiting factor. This is kind of like saying it's, it's not like racism. It's like environment. No, that doesn't work. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's limiting you based on where your society is living. Oh, Arctic people could never develop a large society because they live in the Arctic, right? That's a kind of... Uh, a kind of determinism, right? And we are not saying that that is 
what is going on. We're saying it's important to understand the Arctic as a component of life for people living in it. And if there's change over time, we're going to see concomitant changes in their lifestyle. For example, um, has anyone heard about the uh, explosion of uh, walrus populations in the Arctic? Has anyone heard? Uh, sound like a stand-up comic setting up a premise. Have you all heard about that? Um, it's true. There is a, a really large uh, spike in walrus uh, growth over the last couple decades because walrus meat used to be the primary uh, dog food in the Arctic, and so people would hunt pretty uh, heavily uh, the walruses and freeze them and then feed them to the dogs over the winter when they had dog sleds. Well, in the last 50 years, the use of dog sleds has gone down and the use of uh, snow machines or snowmobiles has gone up and replaced the dogs, therefore less hunting pressure on the walruses and they don't really have a lot of other predators, although we are seeing more and more uh, polar bears uh, predating them. So this is a way that uh, human activity is going to be leaving a mark on the at least the, the fauna of the Arctic. So this would be something maybe in a thousand years archaeologists will see the spike of, of uh, of walruses, I almost said walri, which would be a really fun plural, uh, but we are not seeing, uh, but they might not know why unless they also see that rise of snowmobiles, so, right, so this is all interconnected. All right, so let's talk about the global environment. Where are we going? Yeah, so the global environment is something that we can get kind of a, an average temperature type of reading across the entire world, and while we have to modify that to fit local conditions. Knowing the global temperature average and its change over time can be useful. And obviously, today, when you hear about global temperature change, we're talking about you know, how much um, the immediate average temperature is rising. We're talking about tenths of degrees or hundredths of degrees even, or just a couple of degrees centigrade over a century. Doesn't sound like a lot. But that global average changes and can have vast impacts. So the same thing is true in the past. And we're looking at the, you know, the usually a, a, cent, uh, a century at a time. Sometimes we're talking about a millennium at a time. When we get farther back in time, uh, you know, tens of thousands of years, we're talking about how time, or excuse me, how climate changes over millennia. And we're going to talk exactly about how we trace that. The two primary ways that we get at temperature are through ice cores and sea cores, which we've met before, but I said I would go into more detail today and that that time has come. Before we get into specifically how we deal with temperature or how we get at temperature from ice and sea cores, we need to know a little bit about oxygen isotopes. Obviously, right? Uh, maybe not so obviously. Okay, so just like we have different flavors of carbon, we have different flavors of oxygen. Difference. Um, so oxygen 18 is a uh, isotope. It is not as common as regular oxygen. Um, we're not going to need to know the specific ratio because it changes over time. But oxygen 18 is in the environment just like the regular oxygen 16. And uh, these often get bound up with um, two hydrogen atoms to form our favorite uh, little molecule H2O. And when hydrogen binds to it, right, we get hydrogen bonded to it. Um, 
it's part of water. But because it has extra, um, uh, extra neutrons, it's heavier. And so when we have a sea full of water with, with lots of H2O in it, the regular H2O is lighter and evaporates first. And the heavier H2O with oxygen 18, weighed down by those extra digits, uh, will stay in the water a little longer. So when things are warmer, we're going to see a differentiation in the concentration of H, uh, oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 in the ocean. And just to be 100% sure, let me just double check my notes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so if you think about it, uh, when this light H2O is evaporating, it's leaving more H2O with the O18, more O18 in the ocean. When it's warmer, you're getting more oxygen 18 left in the ocean, and oxygen 16 is going up, being evaporated being rained out to some extent, but if you think about it, even if some oxygen 18 is evaporated, it's going to be the first to fall out because it's heavier, so it's the first to dissipate out. And so only the most purest oxygen 16 is going to make it up to Antarctica, or down to Antarctica. 5% less H, uh, oxygen 18 than ocean water because it drops out preferentially, it's evaporated preferentially, or um, Right, so that hopefully this makes sense. All the heavy oxygen 18 is dropping out before it reaches the ice caps. So over time, if it's really warm, eventually more the concentration can become so great that some oxygen 18 does make it up to um, Antarctica. So we can trace the relative change over time of oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 isotopes. And the more oxygen 18 that ends up in the ice, means that it's really, really warm, because it has to be really warm to get lots of oxygen 18 into that ice. It's really hard to move it out of the ocean, okay? So, the oxygen 16 isotope versus the oxygen 18 isotope ratio tells us the relative temperature, just relative. It doesn't tell us exactly until we match that ratio up. Right, so if this is the ratio, over here, and here's more oxygen 16, and here's more oxygen 18, right? If we match this ratio up over time to modern times where we get an actual um, measurement, so we know that when oxygen 18 and 16 are at this point in the ratio, and our historical records show that the average temperature was you know, one degree centigrade, um, below what it is today, let's say today's here, right? As we track that change of ratio over time and are able to compare that to you know, our current data, we can then extrapolate back and say, oh, the temperature would have been hotter or colder than today because we can reconstruct that uh, ratio and what that ratio value means in terms of real temperature average. This can go back um, about 700,000 years. 700,000 years worth of this data. 
because Antarctica has really deep, has really deep ice um, records. And so what they do is they take an ice core, which is a deep bore into uh, a glacier, and it will go back um, and recover each one of these years annual kind of like rings in your Denver chronology. Each one of those rings represents a year of accretion. And so scientists can snip out a year, pop the uh, oxygen or the water into an AMS, a stellar mass spectrometer, and measure the different flavors of isotopes that we have there. And their ratio, therefore, we can recreate ratios and their change over time, giving us a global average temperature. What's even cooler, though, is that if you see these little bubbles in here, if you think about when snow falls, right, snow is anywhere from 8 to 12 times the thickness of, of rain. So if we had an inch of rain, we'd end up with 8 to 12 inches of snow. Right? So here's all our snow. And you all know that there's lots of space in between the snowflakes, and that if you were to melt it down, it would all condense. Right? Well, if snow falls in Antarctica, or uh, the Peruvian Andes, that's uh, another place where we get these records. It's going to trap some of that air in the layer as it is compressed by more snow on top of it. Fun fact about air is that it circulates so freely over the globe that like, that air I just caught there is largely indicative of the air all over the world right now. So the air that's being trapped in this um, snow is indicative of the air pretty much all over the world. For the mo it's pretty good. So when those bubbles get trapped, all scientists have to do is cut out this section in these two years, put it in a plastic bag, vacuum all the modern air out, melt it, and then you have air bubbles from however many thousand years ago freely available. So you can suck them out with a syringe, put them into the AMS, and say, oh, that's interesting. There's 200 parts per million carbon. Or there's, you know, one part per million methane, or whatever. And because we can do that for every year for the last tens of thousands of years, uh, we can go a couple thousand years, like 3,000 years, year by year. And after that, it's like bigger chunks because they get more compressed, and the, the lines between them become less distinct a little less um, precise. But still, for thousands of years, we can say, here's how much CO2 there is in the atmosphere. And actually, know what, this is what boggles my mind sometimes about people who say, well, scientists don't really know how much carbon was in the atmosphere. Yeah, we do. We can measure those exact bubbles. We can measure the air from a thousand years ago and say how much carbon dioxide was in it. Period. It's like, it's no, I don't know how to get it any more direct than that. That's why I get sometimes a little, I'll admit it, a little overexcited about people uh, saying that we don't know because we can measure it directly. It's not like an indirect measurement. It's the air from a thousand years ago. Anyway, excuse me. <laughs> On the other hand, another way to corroborate this evidence is through deep sea cores. And so we can, one way to recreate the oxygen 16 to oxygen 18 isotope ratio is by looking at the oxygen that is trapped in seashells. Uh, 
more specifically, foraminifera. We'll just call them forams. Forams or foraminifera are small um, sea creatures that create a, uh, a shell using uh, carbon and oxygen. And these CaCO3 shells, calcium carbonate, these shells that they make uh, when they die float down gently to the bottom and they make up a lot of the seafloor. Well, since they are taking oxygen out of the water, they are able to recreate the oxygen 12, excuse me, oxygen uh, 16 to oxygen 18 ratio because they're going to use it at the exact rate that it is in the ocean right now. So, when lots of 16 has evaporated and gone up and turned into ice caps, so think of the last glacial maximum when this place was covered with a wall of ice a mile above us, there would, that would have been mostly oxygen 16, leaving much more oxygen 18 relative to 16 in the ocean. And the CaCO3 carbon, um, calcium carbonate of the foraminifera shells would then have that same ratio showing a lot more. So when we take out a sea core, we can dig up these little shells, run them through the machine, and see which um, oxygen isotopes are there, and therefore reconstruct the oxygen 16 and 18 ratio to corroborate what we have in the ice cores. Furthermore, deep sea cores go back 2.3, yes, 2.3 million years. So sometimes they will be a little wider, and we're getting like millennia at a time, but still, you know, 2.2 million years ago, getting, you know, a couple thousand years in one chunk is fine. Like, that's, that's good enough uh, to reconstruct the general uh, temperature of the Earth. Interesting, um, then, when things uh, warm up again, um, a lot of ice, uh, oxygen gets trapped, when glaciers melt, all that oxygen 16 comes back in the ocean and pollutes it. So we have this interplay um, of oxygen 16 and oxygen 18. We can, um, even though we can't necessarily see the annual rings or annual, uh, annual segments in a sea core, what we can do is pull out uh, rocks or carbon or other bits and date them through the Uranian series dating. So sometimes we have to employ our um, radiometric dating to get at the age of these sea cores. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to, um, and to be really, just to be super clear about this, oxygen 16 to oxygen 18, when it's warmer, we see less oxygen 16. Not necessarily than 18 total, but a lower amount of 16 than we expect. When things are cooler, we see more. Okay. I want to make sure I get all that. So that's temperature. Temperature is largely reconstructed through ice cores and sea Okay. Precipitation, on the other hand, uh, we can get precipitation from a wider variety of sources. 
And often we corroborate these sources or put them together and compare them to hopefully show the same, the same patterns. Precipitation is a little more difficult to say. Temperature, globally, we can take an average. Um, and that's done today through instruments all over the globe. Um, precipitation is a little more difficult, right? It's hard to say um, what global precipitation levels are. Um, but we can do regionally. And so we'll look at things like ice cores, tree rings, and lake bars. So ice cores, um, just like uh, trees, uh, or uh, ice is directly proportional to precipitation, the ice cores in, say, Peru will show through their different thicknesses the relative amount of precipitation that year. So um, in Peru, they go up on the glaciers and they extract these ice cores, and they can reconstruct the relative amount of precision, or excuse me, precipitation each year. This is especially important in Peru because Peru suffers from, suffers from, it's probably the wrong word, um, what's called the El Nino Southern Oscillation. El Nino Southern Oscillation, which most people just call El Nino, um, which is every 3 to 11 years. So if you look at a map or a, a side view of Peru, we've got the ocean down here, we've got the mountains up here, and usually it is, um, there are wet zones and dry zones, dry, dry, wet, dry, and they have infrastructure built up to take advantage of that. Near the coast, they've got irrigation um, that waters crops. In the wet zone, they don't really need to do irrigation. They let the, oh, the cool, moist, uh, the moisture-laden air that's dropping moisture on them uh, keep everything wet. And then everything up here is dry because the air is so cold it can't hold moisture. We have El Nino Southern Oscillation. It flips that exactly on its head, and the dry spots become wet, and the wet spots become dry. And so you get like torrential rain that destroys the infrastructure down by the coast, and you get drought in the normally wet areas. And that happens every 3 to 11 years, fairly randomly. So every, you know, if it didn't happen this year, within the next 3 to 11 years, you're going to get an El Nino. Uh, after the last one, right? So the ice core in Peru has helped tell us that story of how likely it is to happen and how um, we can see the rise and fall of large, um, I'll say civilizations, large cities and uh, urban individuals or urban um, centers rising and falling with periods of particularly severe El Nino events. Events. How is it an event? You can't get tickets to it. It's not an event. Um, trees, similarly, will show a local um, reaction to precipitation. Um, now, when we're looking at, say, pine trees in the American Southwest, they will grow under optimal conditions. And so when they have optimal conditions in terms of precipitation, uh, they'll grow larger growth rings. And when things are not so good, usually during droughts, they have a smaller ring, and so we can look at the dendrochronological sequence not only as a way to put those puzzles together that you guys have been doing, but also to um, reconstruct the relative precipitation. Obviously, not something that's, you know, it's hard to say, like, oh, it got 37.8 inches of rain this year. 
according to the tree ring. It's not quite that, it's a bit more, um, more or less <coughs> precipitation than usual sort of uh, precision. Also, there are um, slightly different carbon absorption rates, and uh, the carbon-13 isotope can also uh, be indicative of uh, more or less precipitation, and the trees will put on that carbon that's more available that year, um, so, kind of similar to the way that uh, ice cores put on different amounts of the oxygen-18 isotope. And finally, VARVs, um, which I haven't talked about too much because they're really largely used in Scandinavia. But lake VARVs um, are annual runoff. And say in the spring, when all the snow's melting, you might get a lot of slush and mud running off into the river, or excuse me, into a, a, a lake. These VARVs build up over time. In one year where you have particularly wet conditions, you're going to get more erosion. This, of course, um, is not so cut and dried because if you have humans in the area and they're building a lot of farms and cutting down a lot of uh, trees or other vegetation that holds in that erosion, you might see uh, unusually high amounts of erosion which may make you think that it was a high precipitation year but it was actually just other environmental factors so it's not always necessarily the best um, but it's, it can be useful if that's what you've got. And again, you know, it's hard to do global precipitation, but that helps. Um, and uh, for example, uh, one place that they also did varves was in um, Lake uh, Payacocha, which is in Peru. Um, Peru or Bolivia? I forget. Uh, but it's in the Inca area. And uh, they were able to corroborate those uh, El Nino events because they're showing much higher rates of erosion during El Nino years because of the inundation in the usually dry places. All right, ocean levels. So, you know, it might seem kind of silly to talk about ocean levels, but they change. And by how high or low the ocean is, we have major human changes, like when the last glacial maximum happened and there were way more, there's way more glaciers on Earth, or on the land, I mean, uh, it took a lot of moisture out of, this, out of the ocean, enough so that the Bering Land Sea Bridge opened. So what is now the Bering Sea was low enough that uh, people could just walk over probably a kind of salt marsh. It wasn't like mountainy or anything. It was, you know, low-lying coastal vegetation, and they may have followed animals back and forth across that open space, um, eventually coming into the New World. So knowing the change of ocean levels can be useful for us when we're talking about the people of North America, for example. Um, it's not quite so easy to say that sea level rise happens or sea uh, subsides, and then you can just map that on the current map um, and say, oh, it was, the sea level was here because it was three meters higher or there because it was three meters lower. Because uh, especially when you're getting glaciers, so if here's the coast, and here's the ocean, and then let's say a lot of this water, you know, goes up in the air and rains down, becomes precipitation and turns into a glacier. Well, glaciers are heavy. That's a lot of water. It actually puts pressure on the land. And so while the sea level may have dropped three meters, let's say, that's three meters, and so it should be here, 
Well, the land is also dropped, so maybe the actual coastline would have been there, which only looks like a meter and a half drop, right? So it's not so cut and dry, and especially in areas where you're going to get um, glaciers um, and significant amounts of water on the land. But in more tropical regions where you're not getting glaciers, you can uh, more easily just subtract the uh, amount of sea level change or add the sea level change to extrapolate where the coast would have been. Um, there are some other proxies. So here's the last glacial maximum. Glacier's all the way up here, and you can see where it opened the land. Great slide, Scott. Um, there are some other things that can tell us where the ocean used to be. Oh, man, there was this. <laughs> when I was an undergrad, there was a geology class that I wanted to take one called Beaches. And every week, it was like a three-hour class, and they would drive to a different beach and look at it and talk about it. Look out geologically. Lucky ducks. Anyway. So here's a coastline. Um, there are different ways that we can tell where the ocean level used to be. One of them is remnant dunes. So where the water washes up to, the water line, there's going to be, there won't be dunes or any other wind-driven morphology of the sand dunes. Um, and if the water rises, it's going to kind of push up the extent of dunes, but when the water recedes back down to here, this formerly underwater area won't have dunes quite so quickly, and so we might be able to reconstruct where the dunes, uh, based on where the dunes are, especially if more sediment comes in and it traps that old, um, that, uh, old land surface underground. If we excavate it, we can actually see where the old dunes were and say, oh, this used to be the coastline, and now the sea is like a kilometer away, which sounds ridiculous, but there are some places where a one meter drop in sea level would change, would push the ocean out a whole kilometer in Spain. Uh, another place is that uh, coral reefs, leave that. Coral reefs grow to the top of where uh, ocean, uh, you know, just below the ocean surface. And so if it dies, that coral reef dies, and then the ocean drops. Right? For some time, that top of that coral reef will poke out of the ocean until it gets eroded. Or if the ocean rises, it'll be way under, and you'll see that flat top where the ocean used to be. And by uh, different forms of dating, usually uranium series dating, you can reconstruct when the ocean was that high. That's another way to get at it. And again, this is somewhat regional ocean level reconstruction. <laughs> Talked about isostatic uplift. That's the um, oceans and glaciers. Submerged land, raised beaches, coral reefs. Okay, cool. So we also have local environmental factors to consider. Um, it's all well and good to have an idea of what's going on globally, uh, but that is all going to be tempered or modified locally by all kinds of factors. Um, one of them could be glaciers, right? Um, in Wisconsin, we have had significant glacial history. And so, you know, you're not going to go looking for people living in Wisconsin before 15,000 years ago, even 10,000 years ago, because unless they can live under a glacier, uh, 
even if they were going on top of the glacier, you're not going to find their stuff. It's going to be completely scattered and or destroyed. Um, glaciers are high energy, low speed uh, when we talk about uh, energy, right? They have a lot of energy because they will gouge uh, out big um, valleys and things, but they're very slow moving. So they're pretty exciting, I think, uh, geological. Um, they move sediment. They create till, as if I need to tell us that if you're from Wisconsin, you know all about glacial till. Um, and it can mess up your mm, reconstructions because if they're pushing and moving around uh, sediments that contain human remains, it's going to mess everything up. It usually jumbles it, makes it very uh, hard to reconstruct anything. Um, evidence of glaciers existing in an area in the past, like we have here in Wisconsin, help indicate what the environment used to be like. Uh, so knowing that there were glaciers here 10 to 12,000 years ago means that we know that 8,000 years ago it was transitioning away from being uh, glacier covered and it was probably pretty sparsely uh, vegetated with you know pioneer plants that could live kind of tundra-like uh, in a tundra-like environment and then 2,000 years after that those plants had proceeded farther north chasing the receding glaciers and a more robust uh, vegetation mat probably would have moved in and over time uh, all these bands kept moving north and we can kind of recreate the different environments that existed in this spot just knowing how quickly and when the glaciers receded, which is pretty fun. Rivers and lakes are uh, really important uh, because human beings need water more than they need food, right? Uh, and so humans tend to congregate around bodies of water, especially rivers and lakes that are great for transportation when you don't have wheels. So in uh, native North America, uh, before Europeans arrived, the only wheels ever used were on toys in Central America. They made these little animals, like clay animals with uh, axle and clay wheels, and like the kids would pull them behind them. So they had like wheels, and they knew how to make them, and they knew that they helped things roll. But they never uh, went large scale, I guess, if you're a Mythbuster fan. They, they only did the small scale model. They never did the large one. Um, and as a result, uh, most overland routes were uh, footpaths. Uh, only in South America did they have any beasts of burden other than dogs. Um, they used llamas as, or llamas, or actually, uh, the correct way pr to pronounce llama or llama is neither of those. It's a um, sound that was made in Quechua that is not made in English or Spanish that approximately sounds like llama, which I can't do properly because I don't speak Quechua. Anyway, random aside. Uh, so rivers and lakes would have been major transportation, food, and uh, water locations. So knowing where an ancient lake bed or river bed was uh, would be a good tip-off. So um, often in archaeology, when we're doing survey and we're looking at, um, you know, we're clearing the right of way for a construction project or something, a lot of our modeling is based on where water is. And so we check within 100 meters or 200 meters, depending on the project, of any river or lake bank and any ancient or previously known river or lake bank. So when you get um, a river, say, the Mississippi, I grew up like 20 minutes from the headwaters of the Mississippi. And uh, always, I've lived my whole life on the Mississippi, not the Mississippi, but 
Uh, I grew up 20 minutes from the headwaters. I lived in New Orleans for five, four years, uh, just from the mountain, you know, down the street from the, the mountains of Mississippi, and then just before living here, I lived in St. Louis, which is also on the Mississippi. Hooray, or the Mississippi. Anyway, so rivers over time meander because of all kinds of fun erosion pressure. So if you've ever been around, uh, gone around a curve, you know that if you go around the curve here, it's very, if you go around a curve very tightly, it slows you down. If you go around the edge, it has a lot more woo, momentum and energy. So it starts to dig out this bend here. Same thing goes here. It's digging out the outside, digging out the outside. And over time, these two river bends will touch. Once they touch, the water has a much clearer path to go downstream. And over time, this will deposit silt right here and here because there's no water pushing it out anymore. And once it's deposited there, we get what's called, I don't know what that's called. Billabong. What? A billabong. Billabong. I've never heard that. That's cool. Uh, no, but I do. Or didn't. like a new. Uh, it might be a I've heard it as a billabong. Cool. Uh, I've never heard it called a billabong. Um, could very well be. Uh, I call it, a, or I, geologically, generally, people call it an oxbow. But uh, I'm going to look that up now because I've always heard, always heard, you know, there's that company name. That's probably the Australian word for it. Anywho, so this oxbow lake used to be the main river channel. And so there's very likely, you know, sites on different parts of it. And that would be a good place to check out, right? Um, so knowing ancient river and lake beds is a useful uh, tool for us. I just looked for oxbow lakes and how they're made. Okay. Here we have some pictures of it. So you can see where the river used to come over here. And it dug itself out and then connected there. We had another one here. And so these oxbow lakes are remnant, sometimes called remnant channels. I'm look at, oh, now I'm curious about Billabong. Um, if you're ever curious about the origin of words, I recommend the Oxford English Dictionary. They have the etymology of words. So if you're ever curious about where words come from, as I often am, that's the first place to go. And if you don't have uh, access to the Oxford English Dictionary, just because this is a useful thing to know and is somewhat archaeological, etymonline.com. It is largely drawn from the Oxford English Dictionary. Let's see where Billabong's from. Australian. Haha. <laughs> Backwater stagnant pool. So there you go. Uh, oh, Aboriginal name of the Bell River. Billabong. Okay, there we go. Wonder no longer. I might have been the only one wondering. Or me and Donisha. Anyway. Um, One of the most robust tools we have as archaeologists for understanding the local environment is sediments. And so this is uh, a study of the morphology of settlement, of settlements, of sediments. Just like you expect to see sand on a beach, um, 
we expect to see different types of soil in different environments and in different conditions. And so when we excavate a layer, we characterize that sediment as whatever it is, because that can tell us a lot about how it was formed, the environment that formed it, and how much we can trust that what we're excavating is actually in a secure context. All right. Um, if you want to specialize in this, uh, you would become a geoarchaeologist. A geoarchaeologist is somebody who specializes in the morphology and of soil and its relationship to human beings. Um, so most of us know the different terms that we use in archaeology. Sand, clay, uh, loam, and silt. Sand, fairly self-explanatory. It's gritty. It's larger grained. Clay, extremely fine-grained. Um, usually they're all the same size. Uh, it's sticky. Loam is... Describe it as earthy, but that kind of is redundant. Loam has a lot of organic materials. It's um, not quite slippery. Like if you get clay wet, it slips under your fingers. If you get sand wet, it's gritty. Um, loam slips a bit, but it's not quite. Uh, it's not it's not the same as the clay. It's more like a clumpy. And then we have silt, which is kind of between sand and clay. It's not sticky like clay but it's very fine-grained. So um, this would be parts of soil composition. So when we're excavating, soil composition, we have a standardized way of looking at this thing. So when you take a piece of sand, there's a, maybe I'll bring it in on Monday, and we'll do different um, soil composition tests. Basically, you make snakes, or try to make snakes, out of different types of soil. And clay will make, uh, obviously, a very long snake. Sand will make no snake. And loam and silt make different uh, lengths of snakes before they crack and things like that. And you can mix and match. You can have clay loam, or loamy clay, or silty loam. That's the common one. Um, clay silty loam, you can have all three together. Sand can be mixed in there sometimes. And the way when you see soil composition, the first, the first one is the lesser. So like if we had silty loam, if we had silty loam, it's primarily loam with a bit of silt mixed in. And I'll, yeah, one day I'll bring in samples and uh, we can make a mess uh, going through how to tell if it's Sandy clay loam, or loamy, uh, loamy clay, or clay silty sand, which shouldn't exist. Um, so we'll talk about that. Um, there's also some other things we look at, like, um, and again, the, the reason that we want to know that is each one of these tells us something different about the environment in which it was deposited. Clay often was sorted by water, right? Um, it often falls out of water. It's mixed in. It's mixed in, so then we have a river going around a bend again. Often you'll find clay here on this inside bend because clay is suspended in the water and it's floating down. And then when the water slows down, it kind of sinks out of the water. A line embodying a clay particle there. 
um, and they would collect here. Well, the lighter particles maybe would continue moving on because they stay up in the water and they keep going. So uh, things get sorted that way. And sometimes we talk about sorting. Um, so sorting refers to how similar all the different particulate matter is. If they're all the same size and they are well sorted, that means they've probably been moved by water usually, sometimes by wind. If they're poorly sorted, that means they probably formed in place um, and they haven't been moved. Same thing with whether or not they are angular. And this is if you're looking at things under uh, the bits of soil under microscope. Here we have in example C, we have poorly sorted, sizes are all different, angular soil. This was likely formed in place. When soils get moved, the sharp edges, just like a rock, do you have one of those rock polishers when you were a kid? They were really loud. My sister had one. It was a little drum. You put grit and rocks in them, and it's turned. And it makes a sound like, like grinding teeth for a month. Anyway, so it would grind the, the sharp edges off the edge of the edges of these sediments, and that would probably have been moved. But you see how they're kind of different sizes? That means that they're still kind of moderately well sorted, not really that well sorted. Maybe they probably um, have moved some, but not a lot. Whereas here we have a lot of the same size. This means that they were probably moved uh, pretty robust, uh, energetically, maybe through. Uh, being washed away in a flood or a river or something like that. So the difference, uh, or rounded, uh, the different angularity and the different sortings often tell us if that sediment's been in place, which is really important. It might not sound that important, but let's say you're excavating and here are your layers of things you're going through, and here you find a pot, and then you find a uh, a revolver. I don't know. Maybe you'll find that. Terrible revolver. And you say, holy cow! What is this thousand-year-old pot doing with a revolver? Did they actually have revolvers a thousand years ago? And then you look at the soil, and you see that it is um, well-sorted and rounded. You say, oh, this is probably some sort of flood or something else that moved this sediment into place. I can't really trust the association here because the sediment tells the story of movement and probably not being formed in place, thus I can't really trust that those things are related temporally. However, if they were angular and poorly sorted, meaning that that soil probably just uh, accumulated and grew over time from dead leaves and other um, natural processes, Quite the find you have there is probably what I'd say. Um, and try and figure out what the heck is going on. Maybe a time machine or something. Someone went back in time a thousand years and <clears throat> dropped their revolver. Okay. Our and so this is called micromorphology, I guess all all told you call this micromorphology.
the small scale shape and nature of the sediments. Um, we have all kinds of different ways that soil is moved and put into place, but the um, two primary ones are wind and your Because we can't just say wind, we have to say aeolian. I don't know why. And then we have uh, rivers. Alluvial. So aeolian deposits just mean that the wind blew them. So like sand dunes would be aeolian deposits. Rivers would be alluvial deposits. That means anything that's been moved by a river. Those are the two ones you'll see sometimes crop up in the literature. So don't be daunted if you see some egghead using big words. Uh, because why can't they just speak in plain old English? I don't know. And I'll throw one more in there that you see sometimes, especially in China, but I've noticed it around here. Loose, loose is a soil that has, it's an aeolian deposit, so I mean, it's windblown, and it usually blows off of poorly vegetated areas and accumulates. It is pretty good agricultural land, actually, and uh, just the driftless, I think, we have a loose, if I remember correctly, there is one in Wisconsin. Driftless. Do, 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 do. Where is it? Oh, it escaped glaciation. My bad. Nope, different thing. Okay, so um, we're going to end there. We'll pick up next time, and we'll finish talking about Sediments, uh, we'll talk about plant environment. So we've mostly been talking about earth science environment. We'll talk about plant environment and animal environment next time. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.